Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Ben Jeffries. Ben is the CEO and co-founder at Influencer. He is one of the most thoughtful leaders in what is unquestionably one of the hottest spaces in the industry more broadly. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about Influencer's U.S. launch, which is relatively recent, and we're going to dig in to this absolutely white-hot data-led, data-fueled global influencer marketing business that is really leading the way. Uh, and I love, Ben, that sort of people power and platform power approach that you guys take. Uh, but in our inimitable fashion, our crack research team has been hard at work, Ben, preparing for today. And where I thought we might start is to go all the way back to an intriguing entry that you were founder of another company, give or take 10 years ago, and that would be Breeze Clothing. And I would love to start, Ben, by talking about another business that you founded and go back to Breeze. Brilliant. Well, firstly, Matt, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Um, an avid listener. Um, I was actually just saying before, um, I listened to the Nicola Mendelssohn podcast this morning as well. Brilliant podcast. She's such an inspiring lady in the advertising industry. Um, so it's brilliant to hear that. But yeah, going back to the Breeze days, wow, that was quite some time ago. Um, so that was probably my first taste into business, so to speak. Um, I did what every young hustling entrepreneur um, would do in his teen years. And I thought, let's launch a clothing business, right? I, I thought, let's launch a clothing business. It's hopefully this will be a way that I can appeal to probably, you know, a bit, appeal to as many people as possible, both in my friendship circle, but also, I mean, you know, a bit of a buck on the side as well. Um, and it actually transpired because me and my friends used to have a saying, which was stop chatting breeze. And everyone kept saying it at school and amongst my friendship group. And I thought, okay, well, let's put on Breeze onto a few t-shirts and see how it can grow. But anyway, you know, from that, I thought with this concept of Breeze, how can I make this clothing brand actually grow in popularity? And this was probably my first taste into kind of what today is influencer marketing. And everyone knows that if, you know, like celebrities wear your clothes if, you know, a celebrity talks about your clothes, if we think about back to the days of 50 Cent and Vitamin Water and Paris Hilton, if you said anything, it would really, you know, make something, you know, really grow. But the, but the issue was, was that I didn't actually know any celebrities, obviously, nor could I afford any celebrities, nor would any of the talent agents back then even speak to me. But I'm a massive Chelsea soccer club fan. And I reached out to a few reserve team players at the time on Twitter, people who had like 10, 15, 20,000 followers. And I basically said to them, look, if I send you some of my clothes, can you post a tweet wearing them and actually tell people to go and purchase from this Breeze Clothing website? And I actually got a really good response from them. And I realized at that moment that there was a real power in people who had this small following on social media that you could get them to really attract their you know their audiences to become consumers almost so i suppose that was kind of like the first light bulb moment into what influencer marketing is today from my side and influencer today using that sort of full tech driven toolkit but back then 2012 
the toolkit was a little bit lighter. Yeah, certainly no toolkit, unfortunately. It was it was back then it was, you know, you were building relationships. It was very agency focused. It was, okay, now I've got a few of these influencers or a few of these micro-influencers, should we say, um, interested in this concept of even posting on social about a brand, which they weren't an ambassador for at this stage. Um you know, can I offer these their services out to other brands? So in the very early stages, I managed to find a brand um, which was not very well known, but it was called Badoo back then. Now, Badoo is actually the former parent of Bumble. They've actually swapped around. Um, so Bumble, the dating app, is now the parent of it. But they were really hard on influencer marketing and really interested in the concept of like growing on social. Um so I managed to persuade them to give it a go as well. And they got a really good response. And then naturally I, I started making case studies that I could persuade more and more people um, to kind of go down this route, so to speak. Absolutely fantastic story, Ben. So uh, let's talk about the temperament and constitution of an entrepreneur. Early on, you found this company, Breeze, uh, the first but influencer, really a tremendous company now. It's almost 10 years already. Talk about where that comes from, that entrepreneurial spirit. Did you work as a kid? Were your parents entrepreneurs? And talk about where that nurtured and nurturing spirit of an entrepreneur for you comes from. Not everyone has that in them. It takes a pretty tough constitution. You've got to be willing, in a boxing analogy, you've got to be willing to take a punch and not go down uh, for the 10 count. Talk about that constitution and entrepreneurial roots. It's really interesting you mentioned that boxing quote, because there's a quote which just suddenly came to my mind, which I remember listening to when I was younger. And it's, it's not how hard you get hit, it's how many times that you can get back up, right? And that's the case, right? It is. It is you know, a consistent journey where there are many misses that you will make, there are many failures that you will make along the way, but it's really whether you take those misses, those failures as learnings, as stepping stones to that greater success that you end up achieving. And I think where I probably got my first taste for business, um, I was very fortunate that my cousin and also one of my best friends as well, they were both very entrepreneurial mindset at a young age. Um, my cousin set up a business called perfectdailygrind.com, which is now the world's largest specialty coffee publication. Very random, but it was a niche which he really grew out. Um, one of my best friends himself set up a business um, called skyflytech.com where he was doing um, drone cinematography, which has now suddenly turned into him launching his own drone business where he's actually building a man-driven drone, right? <laughs> Mental. Um, but we all had this, I suppose, ethos between us where um, we could thrive off each other's energy we could you know jump around ideas to each other and I think that kind of set the bedrock for kind of the passion for being an entrepreneur and I suppose once you have a bit of a taste for it you kind of have the motivation to keep going keep pushing um, and whether that kind of that motivation comes from either the consistent desire to further succeed or whether it comes as well on the flip side, maybe from fear of failure, because once you've kind of dedicated yourself to that path, you, you want to keep pushing even further. Um, but I think it's something when I look back on the fact that, you know, I dropped out of university, I got into one of the top universities in 
in the UK at University of Bath studied business and I dropped out of that to go down the entre- entrepreneurial path. And whether I look back and think, do I regret that? Absolutely not. I think the entrepreneurial path is certainly for some people. And I think it's the dedication and the drive that you can get from doing it as well is really exciting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. And I, you know, I, I always attribute whatever little modest degree of success I've had to my mom who would always encourage me when I was very young She'd cut out newspaper articles for me and say, Matthew, this looks like something you should follow up on. And whether it was, you know, uh, my probably most memorable job, which was it was one summer, Ben, where I had an ice cream cart and sold ice cream on the streets of Manhattan. And the law said that whoever gets to a spot each day, it's yours, that you can't reserve a piece of concrete in Manhattan. And the law also said that you had to be on the street, not the avenue. So the best spot to be, where the highest traffic would be, would be on the street closest to the avenue. And I sold chip witches, which I think are gone now, but it was a a chocolate of vanilla, two chocolate chip cookies with ice cream in the middle. A great item was a dollar. The company made 70 cents, I made 30 cents. And every day I would have to battle it out with the uh, souvlaki guys and the ice cream, you know, the trucks, the older people who did that for a living. I was just a kid doing it for the summer. But you learn to stand your ground. And if you can battle it out on the streets of New York City and hold your territory, uh, that teaches you life lessons which benefit you later in business. And sounds like you had some of those early experiences also that benefit you today as as CEO and co-founder of Influencer? Yeah, I I certainly think, um, you know, there are many life lessons that I was taught. And, you know, it's incredible to hear that, you know, your mum supported you and and drove you in that fashion. I think my my parents were certainly, I mean, you know, they're your biggest fans at a young age, right? So they're the ones supporting you most and probably giving you that, you know, that positive affirmation that you can do it. They're trying to push you harder. So I certainly remember my mom, you know, sharing all of her, you know, any, any moment um, about influencer, whether it be on her Twitter or whether it's via to her Facebook, because she was very proud. And, and I'd say that acted as a motivational catalyst because seeing how proud they were would want to make me, you know, make them more proud overall. Um, but it's actually interesting. You talk about, you know, what life lessons when you're younger are important and kind of even while I was doing Breeze, I remember working in two different jobs at the time. One was in a restaurant, um, in a local restaurant in a place in Kent in the UK. And that teaches you so many interpersonal skills that I would think that every young person should actually work at some stage within hospitality, whether it be in retail or a restaurant, because you learn to actually deal with, you know, a huge diverse um, amount of people, but also a huge diverse amount of personalities. And I think that's really important to be able to do. Um, and then after that, I also remember working for a local media publication, um, selling classified ads. And for anyone who's ever done classified ads knows that no one wants to ever be sold a classified ad. Um, so when you're calling up and you're trying to sell the back of a publication um, that probably only very few people read, um, that taught me many life lessons because I certainly got a number of a large number of no's um, to any sort of sales call that I would make. Um, but I suppose that gave me as well probably the energy um, to keep you know 
to kind of to try and convince some of these to be yeses and that probably took got me my first taste in advertising so to speak as well fantastic story i i love this and uh uh you achieved at a pretty you know high level at a pretty young age forbes under 30 under 30 great honor um uh many many years ago i'm 58 now when i was 28 i was in the cranes new york business 40 under 40 and i remember what a special feeling that was and uh it sounds like you know early on that there was just a hell-bent determination to figure stuff out yes certainly a hell-bent determination and it's interesting. So when I dropped out of university was when I actually met my co-founder, Casper. Now, Casper, um, he is one of the most incredible individuals that I've ever met in my life. He, at this moment in time, or sorry, in, at that moment in time, he was on every billboard around London as like the future of YouTube, the future of entertainment, because he was in his past life, a YouTuber who had 20 million followers across all of his socials. And he um, he actually, at this moment in time, matched with one of my friends on Tinder. True story. Matched with one of my friends on Tinder, and they ended up going out um, over the course of a 12-month period. And it was at that moment when I just dropped out of university to kind of focus on this concept of influencer. Casper was in every billboard. He'd matched with my friend on Tinder. And I said to her, you've got to introduce me to Casper. He knows the creator space because he is a creator and he's a genius. I've got a strong passion for the brands, the partners. I feel like this is the perfect marriage, so to speak, if Casper and I can come together. Um, and she said, look, I can introduce you for a 30 minute coffee. Um, nothing more, it's up to you guys. You know, you have to vibe to make it work. Um, and then we ended up having about a four hour strategy session because kind of the momentum was there and the passion was there um, for building influencer up together. Um, so I, I'd say, you know, there are certain moments in your life where you kind of feel that determination um, and that fresh energy come in and certainly meeting Casper and having him um, as my co-founder in the business has really helped motivate and scale influencer up even further. Uh, great stuff. And I, and I want to get into the, the partnership with Casper. Uh, we were thrilled to uh, partner with you at BAFTA on a great, great lunch as part of Advertising Week Europe. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, but I want to touch on one area with you, Ben, which I, I was just super impressed with, and that's that you have become a genuine thought leader in the space. Not only is that manifesting in the work that Influencer is doing with its clients, but you're also writing a lot. You're talking about issues. You're commenting on experiences, and I was struck by a piece that you wrote about someone I just ran into recently in LA who had some challenges, and that was David Dobrik uh, and the scandal that he had. And when you put yourself out there, you're creating risk. Talk about that decision to start writing thought leadership pieces and become really almost a go-to expert in many ways on the current landscape in the influencer space that you know your influence here is beyond influencer. I think one of the most important parts in selling is not selling, right? You need to always be adding value to people in conversations. And I think that's one lesson that I was taught from a very early, you know, part of my career that always be adding value, always be thinking, you know, 
if you're going to be giving comment or something or, you, or you, you've ever got the opportunity to be on a panel or a keynote, always be adding value. So when it comes to being kind of a thought leader, I realized very early on that I wanted to be kind of researching the space as much as possible, whether it be through researching stats, researching stories and giving my opinion so that I could become at some stage of my career, a thought leader on the exact topic. Now, with the speeds of where influencer marketing was going, the speeds of the creator industry, how fast it was going, there was honestly so much to cover. Um, so I thought, you know, look, the more and more that I can research, but also the more I actually speak about things in a regular cadence, um, that will help, you know, kind of encourage more conversation, so to speak. And it's not necessarily that, you know, I only reference one thing and then that one thing gets picked up a month. I'm referencing a multitude of things. And I'm just lucky that, you know, someone thinks one thing is interesting and then that bit actually gets picked up. So I think that would kind of be my advice to anyone else looking to do something similar in the space is it's not just about one lucky break that gets put put out it's the case that you are putting out so much content that eventually <laughs> someone finds one part of it interesting that it actually gets put out so to speak but look i think in terms of the creator space and you know um, in terms of creators as well you know i've got huge admiration for the fact that you know we, we live in a world where you know cancel culture is a thing and it's more so than ever because you're not just seeing people's life from from one side you're seeing people's life from every side what they do on social what they do behind the scenes on social um so i think i've got a huge amount of respect for creators who kind of put themselves out there so to speak um and open themselves up um for conversation about them such an interesting topic and it opens up a real pandora's box Let's talk about two subjects. You're a U.S. operation now, so we're going to have to go beyond Chelsea and uh, primarily to American sports and American sports analogies. Let's talk about John Morant of the Memphis Grizzlies, and let's talk about Bud Light, two completely unrelated topics. John Morant has been caught twice now waving his gun around on social media, uh, was suspended initially, great, great player, physically gifted, but uh, questionable judgment to say the least. And it looks like the NBA is going to suspend him for a long period of time. The commissioner has decided on what the punishment will be, but does not want to disrupt the NBA finals going on now. And has said publicly, we're going to reveal the punishment after the finals are over for Ja. Who's one of the top 10 young players in the NBA in terms of physical gifts? In terms of judgment, probably one of the bottom 10. Well, talk about this proclivity of creators and people that are in very in a very public way in the in the public space on social to really shoot themselves right in the groin. And that's what Ja did, waving a gun around. Uh, initially, I think he was in a strip club. I think the second incident might have been on a bus somewhere. Uh, and then puts his own content out there. He's the one playing with the gun, and in this case, literally pulling the trigger, forgive the analogy, on undermining his public image, his career, jeopardizing millions and millions and millions of dollars. You know, this guy was headed for a, what they call a max contract. It's a couple hundred million dollars 
that he may have just flushed down the toilet. Look, I think anyone with a large audience has to realize that they have a huge responsibility because whether or not they want to portray their content in a certain way, there will be, you know, certainly young people who will be watching their content who may not have the full backstory over various items. And that is dangerous because, you know, young people who don't have full backstories may see part of their content. It may get taken out of context as well. And that is, you know, that can, that can damage anyone's, you know, personal brand, so to speak. So it's really important that for those celebrities, those, those creators who are building up these large audiences, they have to take that into serious consideration um, because they need to make sure that as they're building their brands, they're doing it in a, in a safe manner, because I think it's really important that, you know, particularly young people, you know, back when I was at, at school, um, everyone wanted to be a football player. Now everyone wants to be a YouTuber. Everyone wants to be a creator. So a lot of young people are looking up to them as, you know, as icons, as aspirational people that they can, you know, that, that they can become. So they will look to copy actions that they take in order to grow their own followings from scratch. So, you know, when when people get held account on that basis, that is because they're looking to protect, you know, young people who may seek to, to copy or replicate. So, you know, in my perspective, I think it's really important for people to just be consistently reminded that there are young people watching their content um, and that they must kind of, you know, just be careful and respectful um, that people may look to copy what they may do. Great answer. And, and, I, and I think that awareness, sadly, uh, maybe it's the indiscretions of, of youth and certainly older people certainly uh, can be tremendously indiscreet, too. So not to suggest that young people have the market cornered on, on bad judgment. Uh, let's talk about Bud Light. I, I, I read this morning that. Um, this might be a good time to buy Anheuser-Busch stock that they have taken such a beating over what was a relatively modest campaign uh, by not one of their uh, big agencies. It was a boutique shop. I think it's called Captive 8 out of the West Coast. And uh, I, I saw with Bob Latchkey, a longtime Anheuser-Busch marketing executive who was one of the key players in building that brand over 20 years, came out and said, you know, they, they, we built this thing for 20 years and it took them five minutes to destroy it. Talk about the firestorm there, uh, which gets involved in the uh, U.S. Uh, political mess and uh, to me, just bizarre fixation on uh, discriminating against the trans community. Uh, why this has become such a lightning, ride, uh, lightning rod for the... Uh, crazy right in America, I can't say, uh, but it is. And this is a big, big issue. One of the presidential candidates was just talking about this is the issue of our times. I, I don't see how that can possibly be true. And, you know, when you're looking at, uh, at poverty, when you're looking at the climate, when you're looking at, you know, what I would call real issues versus a uh, uh, politicized issue that attacks freedom of choice, which is at the very heart of what our founders wrote many, many years ago uh, to create the United States Constitution, uh, lost in politics today. But talk about the damage of a brand. And if you were brought in, an influencer says, okay, we're gonna fix this. 
what would you do? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And, and, and I think, look, when politics becomes at the center of a, a brand tone of voice, you know, you, you do always have to be very careful because politics by nature is divisive, right? That's the whole reason you have a, you know, a largely a two-party system, whether that be in the US or whether that be in the UK, it's very much, you know, a two-party system and it is very divisive by, by nature. So when you can typically make, you know, make statements to one side, you have to expect that the other side may not necessarily agree with it. Now, you know, in terms of Bud Light, as an you know, as as an example, I think Bud Light have a huge history as a brand, and I think certainly you know being owned by Budweiser, um, and kind of the potential that the brand's got. I mean, you know, they they they're one of the main sponsors of the Super Bowl, right? Um, and they're also one of the main sponsors of you know some of um, the the largest football events over in 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 the UK. I certainly feel like as as a brand marketing team, they'll be able to kind of get their brand back up to where it has been in the past. Um, I think, yeah, it could be a certainly great opportunity to buy stock, so to speak, um, in, in, in the brand. But look, I think um, it's really important that when you're um, aligning to some form of political um, agenda to then assess all of the potential risks associated to it. Now, whether or not you agree with, with, with what came out, I think we can all agree that it was some element of, you know, what could be a good word to describe the craziness um, of, of the backlash that followed. Um, you know, I'm, I was speechless when I saw it all. Um, but I think, in in big moments in in history, so to speak, um, you know, brands can stand you know stand tall, and they can be the ones who can help lead change. Um, but I certainly agree that you know there are lots of things going on in this world as well that also need um, you know equal voice and equal shouting about um, to be actually done. Yeah, and I didn't mean to focus on the the potential money making opportunity of a of a fundamentally strong business whose stock price has taken a beating. I I thought that was an interesting take uh, this morning that I saw. But uh, our bizarre fixation on things that uh, uh, should be largely out of the political arena, in my judgment, uh, is uh, you know one of the many things upsetting about U.S. politics. H how big a story is it globally, Ben? You have a good finger on the pulse globe pulse globally is it just a big story here in the u.s or is it a big story everywhere to be honest if you come to the uk you see our own political systems in a bit of a mess yeah so, um you know it's it's a situation where like i think my personal viewpoint is that with marketing we, we you know we, we should stay out of politics um and that we should focus on delivering a brand message that being said when there is I don't think Bud Light themselves wanted to be into politics here, right? They were just, you know, you, you know, having creators who are part of the trans community because they felt that was what's right. And that is what's right to be able to use creators of sure. all different types. Um, so I think, you know, it. I wouldn't necessarily say that the stories kind of flocked over to the UK on a global sphere. I'm sure it's much more um, accelerated in the US. But I, I do certainly think that um, 
there are so many things going on in this world right now that it's important that you know for, for brands um to kind of you know see what they can do to support what they believe is right but also at the same note um to not maybe focus their messaging on political items even though just to be clear i don't believe that was what bud light were trying to do um because i feel like it could always be a divisive topic yeah yeah, really, uh, we could do a whole separate episode just on this issue. It's such a, 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 a complex one. All right, l- let's turn our attention back to Influencer. And you shared a little bit of your story, uh, a chance meeting with Casper, what was supposed to be a short conversation, ended up being a much larger one. You're now in it, uh, I guess, 2015. It's not quite 10 years, but we're getting close. Talk about the growth trajectory where you started, where you are now, what you and Casper saw coming, and what may have surprised you and taken influencer in a different direction over time. Yeah, so I'd say, you know, one thing which Casper and I have always managed to do over the last few years very well is bring in people who are much smarter than us. And I think that's always, you know, what they try and teach you back at school, so to speak, that if you want to scale something up, it's bringing people with the experience, but also, you know, the pedigree of, um, of, of who've done it before to be able to help accelerate the business. But it's also important when you bring in those people um, to trust their judgment, um, to be able to allow them to use their experience. Now, I'd say, you know, over the years, we've been fortunate enough that we've attracted people from the likes of, advice from the likes of Twitter, from the likes of Havas, from the likes of, you know, Discovery, all of these big brands where people have come over and been attracted to work at Influencer um, purely because they see the future of where the creator economy is actually going. Um, But, you know, added on to that, we've been, you know, really excited to have worked with some of the world's largest brands on some of the most incredible campaigns. Um, you know, within the UK, we work with Google across all of their hardware brands, whether that be on Pixel, whether that be through Chromebook, whether that be through Fitbit, some really exciting brands to help work with them on their influencer strategies. And we've done that for the last three years now. Um, I'm working with them again this year and next year um, on furthering that strategy more on a global um, on a global sense. Um, but outside of Google, you know, we've done some fantastic works um, with some of our social media partnerships um, with the likes of Meta and TikTok, with the likes of Coca-Cola. Um, and we've been able to work across not just Coca-Cola as a brand, but also some of their sub-brands like Costa Coffee over in the UK or Coke Zero over in the US. So I think what we're seeing, particularly over the last few years, is the fact that these bigger, larger blue chip brands who are some of the world's largest advertisers flock towards actually playing a bit of catch up in the influencer space, getting very excited about the fact that attention has moved um, firmly on social. And that's been quite exciting for us to be on the tail end of that. I think, um, you know, what we're seeing as well within the influencer space is advertisers more and more are seeing marketing as creator first so we're not just having brands come to us and say we want to be running influence marketing campaigns 
but they're saying we want to be using creators in our out-of-home adverts. We want to be using creators in our TV adverts. We want to be using creators in our programmatic adverts. Can we have access to your pool of creators? And for me, that's really, really interesting because we're getting a seat at the table in these larger, bigger brand budget conversations because we're having access to the creators and being like the home of creators, so to speak. Let's go back and put that entrepreneur's hat on. And Ben, give me something that you and Casper thought would happen that did, something, a premise as you were launching the business that was validated. And give us something that surprised you that you didn't see coming. So I'll start with with the reverse to that question on something that surprised us. So back when we first launched Influencer, we were adamant that we could become like the Airbnb of influencer marketing. We were adamant that brands and creators could just speak to each other on a platform and that we could make a very small margin in between to be like the transaction between the two. What we realized is we built this technology and brands then came to us and asked for advice. Creators then came to us for advice. Creators didn't necessarily know what fee to charge. They didn't necessarily know how to interpret the the brand's brief. Brands would come to us and say, we've got a top level media strategy, but how do we make sure it's socially or influencer relevant? So that's when we soon realized that actually what we needed to do at Influencer wasn't just automate the connection between brands and creators and stop trying to see it as like a programmatic solution because ultimately creators are people, they're humans and they need that more personal touch. So that's when we kind of put kind of a brand safety layer in between the influencers and the brands and that the brands would speak to us, the creators would speak to us. And much like an agency, we would actually run the campaigns for our clients through our own technology for them. Now, in terms of one bet, so to speak, which has come through from that is this obsession with moving away from a lot of the vanity metrics. Now, over the years, we've always been surprised that people in the early days saw the number of likes or the number of followers that a people, you know, you know, as part of an activation would see it as the success metric. And we believe that you know, as I said, they are purely vanity metrics, and that's not how you should determine the success of an influencer campaign. We believe that influencer marketing is very measurable and that you should be measuring an influencer marketing campaign in multitude of different ways, whether you have it as an awareness consideration or conversion campaign, because depending on the strategies, you can basically you know run an influencer campaign to suit each need. Now, when it comes to consideration and conversion, with consideration, there are various, you know, thematic analysis you can do um, where you can understand what the comments actually say on influencer campaigns. So you can say, do those comments show purchase intent? Do those comments show any key themes? And then when it comes to conversion, influencer marketing can drive app installs. Influencer marketing can drive sales. So we believe those should be the core metrics to showcasing how you should measure an influencer marketing campaign. Great, great great answer. And I like how you started in reverse. You touched on it, but talk about the decision to invest in technology. You have built a lot of your own engine and done it in such a way that it integrates data with a lot of the leading platforms 
in many ways, I think, been sort of a bellwether of where measurement needs to go, that it's all being done sort of with everybody sitting on one side of the table and brand safety being part of that consideration set as well. Talk about that decision, and uh, then I'd love to talk about the decision and uh, how the launch over here in the U.S. is going, which I know is relatively recent. Yeah, so over, you know, over the last few years, the consistent investment in technology has been really key to us because if I'm honest, it hasn't been where the low-hanging fruit has actually been because the easy solution is not necessarily to be investing in all of this technology because you're also having to move at the pace of certain social platforms um, because they're consistently updating kind of, you know, the metrics that they offer, also the content types that they offer as well within the platform. Um, but the reason we undertook that decision was that we wanted to make sure that with all of the data that we were collecting on the creators and the campaigns that they were performing, that we would have this database um, of creator data that would empower how we are able to run campaigns for our clients. And it would be enable us to have that rich data set so that we could run more of those lower funnel style campaigns for our clients because we've got the data on what has worked previously and what hasn't worked previously. So we've done the tests and learned for our clients so they don't have to. Now that's just on the performance data side where data also is a huge hot topic within the influencer space is having access to API data, which influencer we do have, means that we can showcase to our clients the live true data that people are able to see when running a campaign, both on the creator, but also the campaign performance. Now there are businesses out there within the space who don't have access to the API. So we'd have to scrape data. And what that basically means is that they would be having to see what they could publicly get, whether that be literally just the number of followers, the number of comments, and maybe if they people didn't hide likes, the number of likes, and then all other under the hood metrics, whether that be like impressions, saves, shares, they would have to estimate of what they see as benchmark percentages. But that's not true and accurate data, that's just estimates. Whereas having API data ensures that we are getting those true and accurate data points to enable us to properly measure influence marketing campaigns. And it works the same way for demographic data on a creator. You want to work with a creator, you want to know where their audience are from, how old their audience are, um, and you know the location of their audience. Because after all, when you buy a programmatic ad or you buy any other advertisement, you have that data. If you don't have access to the API, you're doing it through estimates. So you're, you're guessing where the actual um, ad may actually be seen. So that's why it's so important to have that true and accurate API data and you need your own proprietary tech to automate the collection of that API data, which is why it's been so important that we've invested um, in our technology over the years. And we brought on board a few years back um, the old VP of engineering from Unruly, which got bought by Tremor International. Um, and th there's a guy in the business called Rafael Franco, um, who is our chief product officer, who came from there and has really led the way in building our platform power that we have today. Uh, great, great story. And uh, I think, Ben, my favorite part of the conversation is going back to that sort of, I'll call it inadvertent, but purposeful and thoughtful discovery of the power of micro-influencers 
going back to Breeze and how you used some of those second and third tier Chelsea players, uh, drawing on your passion for your team uh, and how you were able to make that work and understood how you could capture and bottle the power of those who had 10, 20,000 followers, that it's not just about uh, the Kardashian and Jenner uh, level numbers. Great, great story. As we wrap, let's talk about the U.S. launch. How is it going? And what other parts of the world do you and Casper have your eye on as we look at the future in 24 and beyond? Yes, we've done a you know phenomenal job over the last few years of building a really strong brand reputation within EMEA, both within the UK, across France, Germany, the Middle East. Um, you know, really the US is the world's largest advertising market, right? It's, you know, the budgets here are so much bigger than they are in, in the UK when it comes to things like test budgets. So you really have to crack the US. And the US isn't just us cracking the East Coast, it's us crack it, cracking the West Coast and the whole of the US, right? So we're under no illusions about the challenge that it's going to be, but we have already worked with some really incredible blue chip brands over in the US, um, and we've done some incredible work in partnership with TikTok um, in elevating us out further. So I think that the UK for us, um, sorry, the US, should I say, um, we've already done a phenomenal job in building up not just a strong client base, a strong partnership base, but also a strong team. We brought over a lady called Jenny Penish from Vice, who was the SVP of North America Commercial over there. Um, who is leading um, our US operations alongside me. Um, and she's brought over a number of people from Vice as well. So we've been quite lucky, um, unfortunately, with what's happened with Vice, but to actually bring some of the best talent over um, to be able to grow our business um, e even further in the US. So I think, look, the US is certainly our number one focus over the next 12 months. Whether that expansion goes from not just the US but into other North American regions, of course, you know, time time will tell. But outside of that, look, certainly over the next three years, APAC's a priority. But at the moment, the US is our number one priority. Um, so we really need to focus on that. Makes sense, Ben. Well, what a great story, and uh, I love the conversation uh, here. Uh, we love partnering with influencer and look forward to uh, doing more with you and your team. Uh, we had a great, great crowd at BAFTA uh, in London a few weeks ago, which is always very humbling for us. If the room is full, we did most of our job, and then the job that Casper and the team did on stage really brought it home, and uh, I love this conversation. Uh, let's uh, grab a bite to eat in New York. We'll help you any way we can, and uh, any New York advice you need uh, from uh, ice cream related to uh, beyond, happy to, uh, happy to help you. And uh, thanks so much for joining us here on Great Minds. Thank you very much, Matt. I really appreciate it. And yeah, looking forward to Influencer partnering with Advertising Week New York as well. Um, so all, all upcoming, but no, thank you. Really enjoyed this conversation.